0: Before we get into today's interview with photographer Dan Winters, I wanted to tell you about a new file transfer tool I've been using lately called PicDrop. PicDrop is a file transfer tool that was designed by a professional photographer with photographers' needs in mind. With PicDrop, you can easily upload, archive, and share your files with clients, and even create private galleries for each of your jobs where clients can make selections um, for each shoot. Um, Prior to PicDrop, I was just using outdated platforms like Dropbox and Google Drive to share my work with clients. But with PicDrop, they truly understand what professional photographers need. And it's just kind of streamlined my workflow. Like I know I got all my selects saved from all my shoots. I can log on easily on my phone um, or on my laptop and download files if I need to download a file quick to upload it online or whatnot. And it's just I know my stuff is safe and it's there. And it's just really easy to use. Um, so if you go to pickdrop.com and sign up, uh, today you'll get three months free of pickdrop by entering the promo code photo banter, one word, this photo banter. Um, so definitely go check it out and let me know what you guys think. But like I said, I've been using it for a while um, and can't recommend it enough. I love it. Um, so go to pickdrop.com and remember to enter the promo code photobanter, one word when you sign up at pickdrop.com and you'll get three months free. Um, so I hope I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dan Winters. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne. And on today's podcast, I welcome back returning guest, photographer, Dan Winters. Dan has worked with clients such as Time Magazine, Netflix, Wired, National Geographic, and the Smithsonian Magazine, to name a few. He has photographed everyone from Barack Obama, Elon Musk, Brad Pitt, and Bernie Sanders, to name a few. Dan has published several books, including Road to Seeing, where he shares his journey to becoming a photographer and his approach to work and creativity, which I highly recommend. Dan is someone whose work I've looked up to for a long time and I have great admiration for Dan's knowledge and respect for the history of the photographic medium, as well as his work ethic. I was happy to get a chance to speak with Dan about what he's been working on recently. So I hope you enjoy and thanks so much for listening. All right, well, Dan Winters, welcome back to the program, man. I'm excited to talk to you again. Uh, it's been a crazy year to be a human being. Um, how, how are you doing, man? Like, how's your year kind of been and uh, this how's life out there in Texas and with everything going on, I guess.
1: Um, it has been, it has sort of been unprecedented, that's for sure. Um, uh, you know, I saw it manifest itself professionally in a lot of ways. Um, you know, a lot less air travel, much more driving stuff, mm-hmm. uh, which typically, you know, we, if it's within sort of three or three or so hours of Austin, oftentimes I'll opt to drive just because, you know, flying takes even longer than driving, you know, once you uh, deal with all the baggage in the rental car and stuff, but um, sort of some more driving stuff. I, I just came back from West Texas. I was there for six days doing a, working on a photo essay on the Permian Basin, and that was uh, all vehicle, you know, all off, off the, off the uh, road there. And that was really fun. Um, worked on my movie a lot, which I was working on when I saw you before.
0: Yeah. When I, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Cause you were like building sets out in your workshop and stuff out back when I was out there last time.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And doing, working on the miniatures and stuff like that. So we just a couple of weeks ago, we locked picture. So we have it f- fully edited and, um, it's in sound right now and it's in music right now and we're just starting to color grade so all the sort of like final post stuff's coming together um i have to go out to la to record the narration um I'm, a friend of mine's going to uh, do the narration so we have to go record that but other than that yeah that's coming together and you know it's one of those things too when you look at uh when you look at circumstances in your life specifically the way I look at them anyways, you know, what, what can I make of my circumstances right now? You know, it's like, clearly like works died down. Um, you know, my inability to, to travel by air or unwillingness to be honest with you. Yeah. Like I totally took it to heart, man. I mean, I was like, okay, I'm going to like live, you know, no decisions I'm going to make professionally are worth dying for. So, um, definitely going to like, uh, Oh, definitely going to, Travis told me to mute my phone. Um, Definitely going to take advantage of this. So, you know, the way it manifested itself for me was like spending a ton of time on the movie. We spent about 60 days editing and um, I got a knee replacement surgery, which, you know, took me down for a couple months, but I totally took advantage of it. I, I said to Kath, I'm like, you know, I need to have this knee replaced for like seven or eight years. I put it off because, you know, I don't want to, you know, let my guys down, but they, you know, they were able to go on unemployment and uh, I was able to get the surgery and, you know, recover and, you know, work on the movie and all the things I worked on, I have several books that I've been working on. So I worked on those and just kind of um, really just took advantage of the time off knowing full well that once we get through this, you know, things are going to start back up again. They already have, to be honest with you. So you know just uh kind of one day at a time what about you
0: yeah man i mean this year's been weird man like i've been talking to about a lot of people and like 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 you and myself like a lot of my work is based around people shooting portraits and you know i've been doing my assignment work that comes in but other than that like i haven't really been setting up like any personal like portrait shoots just with everything going on like i know some people are doing like virtual shoots some people are still doing stuff like shooting outdoors i just kind of have just kind of been putting a pause on it so it's just been kind of a i don't know kind of definitely had some like weeks and months here where i was just kind of depressed because it's like not because i usually like a type of person i always got like a project going on that i'm working on and it's always like portrait based so for me right now i'm just trying to figure out like what i can do during this time and just find something to photograph which is kind of something i'm still just trying to navigate through right now you know
1: Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things also that I've kind of taken advantage you know taken advantage of the time off obviously is reading watching films but also going through my archive and doing archival organization you know especially the digital archive uh, especially like my personal digital archive of stuff that you know I shoot for myself Um, just the gift of being able to sit for you know five or six hours and just edit and really you know look at stuff and i think my x100 catalog has like 54,000 photos in it so the idea of like being able to really go through that and have sort of fond memories of like moments that i'd forgotten and uh you know be able to mark them up in some coherent way and get some uh you know edit in lightroom so you know assign some uh value to the images and stuff like that that's also been a great thing so and you know studio organization and you know, I've done more reading in the last several months than I had in quite a while. You know, I used to spend a lot of time on planes reading. That was kind of my reading time. And that's completely like, I haven't been on a plane in almost a year. Yeah. Wow. Which is crazy because I fly, you know, 250,000 miles a year usually. So it's kind of like nuts that I haven't even been to an airport. Like I forgot what it's like. <laughs> I'm totally fine with, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know.
0: Yeah. You know, I think one thing I was going to ask you, like, have you ever had like a point in your career where you just like haven't been satisfied with the work you're making? Like you're just like whatever creatively or just kind of like a creative rut or you just kind of feel like you're doing the same thing over and over again. Like, have you ever had periods like that? And like, how do you kind of work through those like ruts, I guess?
1: You know, I think about if I think about my career, I can look back at times when I was doing better work than other times, maybe or maybe I was experimenting and it wasn't working, but I think when I'm making the work, I always feel like I'm doing the best job I can. Like I try as hard as I can. I think one of the, I don't know if we, we would refer to it as a rut or whatever, but you know, I was talking to someone about this recently and um, I did a really good interview with uh, medium format magazine. Yep. And uh, he had asked me a question about, uh, Olaf had asked me a question about, um, uh, you know, um, going into scenarios and how to react to them and this and that. And like, I was talking to Heisler, uh, Greg Heisler like a month or so ago, maybe a couple months ago. And we were talking about style versus uh, sensibility, you know? So the idea of, and you and I have talked about that as well. The idea of like a style is, uh, he he kind of shared with me a quote from Arnold Newman and Arnold said apparently at one time to Greg, style is basically self-plagiarism. Because, you know, you come up with something and then people want it and then they ask for it and then you go out and do it. And basically you're just kind of knocking off yourself. Maybe you would have just moved on, but people are looking at your archive and they're saying like, oh, we really like this portrait. Can you do something like this for us? So when that happens, it can be a little bit frustrating only because, you know, only because I don't want to say you go through the motions. Because certainly every time I try to do it, regardless of doing it, I try to grow and I try to maybe bring something different to it, so that it's not just completely, <coughs> excuse me, completely um, like you know, self pleasurism But I think um, I think if I were to speak to any frustration, I would probably say, you know, that would be one. And then the other thing is like what people's expectations are. You know, I was, I was thinking earlier. I was looking at my Instagram earlier. Yeah. Um, Kath texted me like earlier this morning and she said, oh, you should post something on Instagram today. So I usually do one or two posts a week. And um, the way I look at Instagram for me is like, it's sort of like, you know, back in the day people used to do like promo cards and stuff, you know, and the idea of like keeping yourself in the forefront of someone's mind. So Instagram kind of to me is like promo cards in the 21st century but um, I posted a picture of Anthony Hopkins and I started thinking about the amount of things I've posted that were like really dear to my heart, like, you know, collages or like, you know, black and white personal work that I would post or this or that, and how few likes those things get. And I post a fricking actor or some celebrity and they get like, you know, 6,000 likes. And it makes me like wonder about like, the people that follow me on Instagram, like you're not even looking at like my work. You're looking at like X movie star. And then, Oh, I like that. It's shiny, you know? So I feel like I have a really loyal base of like 2000 people. And (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) And then the rest, the rest of the people, it's almost more like it's cause who it is. It's not because it's of the photo. And I know that because if I look at a, if I look at some, like actors Instagram that will post like the dumbest thing. Mm-hmm. It's not even like worthy of like looking at half the time and you know, it's like 40,000 likes or whatever, you know? Yeah. So I can, you can't, I don't look at Instagram and get crusty about it at all. I just kind of, it amuses me to a degree, but I also understand it's like a necessary tool in today's environment. You know, I feel like if I wasn't on Instagram, um, I, in some way would be, uh, uh, you know, not sort of acknowledging my professional career to its full potential. Yeah.
0: And I appreciate that you actually will answer people's questions because there's definitely some photographers out there that they haven't, you can tell they're not even running it. It's like someone else. And there's, mm-hmm. and, and I, I was reading through the comments and um one of your followers, followers actually had like an interesting question. He was talking about, yes, do you think it's still possible to make a masterpiece uh, nowadays? Um, like, like with, so much being photographed or he said something to the fact of like can you make a masterpiece in one picture or is it more built on the course of like an entire career and body of work and mm-hmm. uh because like one in your book uh road to seeing you you kind of talk about uh uh one of henry cartier brasson's pictures uh behind the guard saint lazar as mm-hmm. being like a fo- one photo that is this like above and beyond this kind of affected you like do you even view pictures as like singular like masterpieces like that or are you more looking at your work as like this kind of an overall like body of work I guess?
1: Well I think I think the body work's important because it's a mo- it's a much more expanded version of someone's voice, right? Yeah, yeah. Like if it's a singular image that works, that's one thing. But if it's a, a a giant body of work, I think about Bruce Davidson for example. Like Bruce Davidson, absolutely brilliant photographer. Um, absolutely like some singular blue chip standout images. But when you look at his body of work, it's just like one after another, after another, after another brilliant images, you know, uh, which is important. And I I do think that, uh, I do think um, it certainly is, you know, and obviously, you know, you talk about masterpiece and the idea of that being subjective. I I think the uh, universal appeal of that Cartier-Bresson image that you, we just talked about, uh, I think kind of universally people respond to that image, you know? And I think, um, I know that was one image that I saw that was like a, uh, image that changed. There were, there are a few, you know, there's a Stieglitz image that the winter fifth Avenue, uh, by Stieglitz really like stopped me in my tracks behind the guard. At San Lazar, uh, definitely stopped me in my tracks. And there have been many over the years that have for sure. Um, but yeah, I do think, I do think, uh, that masterful work is, uh, is being created. But I understand the idea of like the body of work and the idea that, you know, it's kind of like an album or a band, you know, if you have a single, that's a huge hit, you know, it's yeah. kind of one hit wonder thing, you know. Um, but if you have a band that has a deep, deep catalog, you know, and certainly they have like, you know, Stairway to Heaven and they have, you know, Black Dog and they have Rock and Roll and, you know, Zeppelin Four, for example, But, you know, it's like the Beatles and Zeppelin, like, you can keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper into their catalog. And there's like profound work in there, you know, so I would say like, many masterpieces, but also like, a masterful body of work, I think, you know? Yeah, good question. No, that was a good question. I remember, I remember when he asked that question.
0: Yeah, I always think like, because you think about like photography, so much has been photographed up to this point, and people are taking more pictures than ever. But I still don't I get sick of like looking at like you know i don't know maybe this a random uh thing like like pictures of uh the grand canyon or like yellowstone obviously mm-hmm. those things have been photographed a million times but for me it's like all right let me, let's see what your perspective is and see what you can do with it and see what the weather was like that day or like what's going on it's it, it's the same location but like i think that's the cool thing about photography even still at this point everyone's got a different perspective and it's like harder to do something different but when someone does that's like the cool thing about it for me you know
1: Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the interesting thing about the two things that you mentioned this is something I've thought about quite a bit to the idea of like, what are we responding to when we respond to an image, right? Are we responding to the image itself or are we responding to the idea of the image? So like, you know, Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon are things that we respond to emotionally, regardless of the quality of the image right off the bat, right? It's the same, you know, Ansel Adams images in Yosemite. We're responding first and foremost to the grandeur of Yosemite and then the masterful capture that he's able to make, you know, and composition. But I remember the first time I saw Yosemite Valley. Um, there's a turnoff off off the road that you pull into to park to have this amazing overlook of Yosemite Valley. And I was like, this is where Ansel Adams shot from. He literally pulled his car over. Yeah. And shot from the parking lot. You know, I'm like, this is where he shot from. Cause I think you see those images and you imagine this like giant backpack with a tripod and like hiking to these vantage points. They're like, Didn't almost, spring, I think he
0: brought like a donkey with them or something that would like carry their gear and shit. I could be wrong. I, yeah.
1: I don't, I don't doubt that in some cases. But in this case, y- Yosemite Valley, the shot of Yosemite, you know, storm clearing Yosemite Valley, which is yeah. probably his biggest blue chip image. Mm-hmm. And, it is a phenomenal image and don't get me wrong. I mean, I think it's, it's amazing. And I think when you can make like a phenomenal image in a situation like that and heighten it to the point where it's someone, something we've seen many times but it's heightened to the point where it's, it feels like it's been seen anew. I think that's a really incredible achievement. Um, you know, he photographed uh, Hernandez, New Mexico uh, moonrise at Hernandez New Mexico yep. and uh, I was in Santa Fe with my wife Catherine who you've spoken with and um, w- I said one day uh, we we're just vacationing and I was like oh let's drive up to Hernandez and try to find where Ansel Adams stood when he shot that shot you know so we drove up there and I had a print of it that I printed out at the hotel and so we kind of triangulated you know use the mountains in the foreground and there's a church and there's a cemetery and this and that, you can find where he shot it and you look at it and it's completely underwhelming. Yeah. And yet that photograph is like mind blowing. So, you know, you can take something that, you know is gonna be completely overlooked by the majority of the public and and show them something new. And I think that's a real, that would be a partial sort of definition of a master to me is so, it's so difficult in the portrait world. You know, a lot of the people I shoot have been photographed so many times yeah so like how can i make an iconic photograph of this person you know what can i add to the already existing archive uh, of images of this person that's going to make it you know special that's going to have its own life you know it's challenging it's very challenging yeah very challenging
0: yeah definitely and kind of going off that in terms of like stuff's been photographed a lot um you recently just did an assignment for nat geo um photographing at one of the spacex launches i was just kind of curious like how that kind of came about and like how do you approach shooting those launch shoots because like launch has been photographed a lot by different people and like how do you kind of put your touch on it i guess
1: yeah i mean the launch thing is can be tough i think a lot of the guys out there that shoot launches they try to um they try to make it like an environmental portrait a little bit like if i look at like shooting a shuttle launch is like a portrait of the shuttle yeah um i really hone in on the shuttle, You know, I don't try to like show sort of like the pond with like a bird flying and this and that. You know, I try to just make it about I approach it like I would do a, a portrait of someone. Um, the SpaceX launch was tricky because SpaceX doesn't allow any media um, to cover their stuff, uh, not in a sanctioned way. Got so on. they lock it all down. They have a couple of guys that work for them that are actually good. And then Bill Ingalls, who's NASA's official photographer he shoots them because SpaceX and NASA work together all the time. And those guys are all doing good work. And, you know, it's like, it's pretty difficult considering they have like access where they can set remote cameras and they can, uh, you know, with sound triggers on them and they can pretty much have a run of the place. Yeah. Um, the launch I just shot for National Geographic was no different. You know, we had no, we had no access to uh, the launch facilities or anything. So it's pretty frustrating. I sent a, uh, I set one camera on the beach really close public beach with a sound trigger on it on a tripod and uh, the night before and we went back to retrieve it and someone had put like trash over the lens. And it was a SpaceX security guy, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but I shot from a rooftop um, with a 1200 millimeter lens and got um, a really cool launch photo, like an Ascension photo. I got a good Apogee image and then it blew up when it landed And so I got a good crash photo out of it from where we were. We were 32 floors up on a, like a high rise condo building Wow. um, shooting from there. And we had an incredible like view of everything, you know, it was like amazing, but um, you know, of course you want to be able to get in there and set your frame and, and, uh, and do it. But the truth is of all the stuff that I've seen that came out of that launch so far the one we did from that building top was like a really unique image, you know? And our explosion shot is like a really unique explosion shot. You know, we got like the hopper, which was the last uh, test that they did with the hopper. We got, it's in the picture with the explosion and you really get a sense of scale from it and, and stuff. But yeah, it's tough, you know? It's tough when you're, you know, you gotta, you know, dealing with SpaceX is like, they pretty much shut everybody down. They will not have control over what goes out period they just want to have control over what goes out you know
0: yeah it's surprising that even with like national geographic being such an iconic magazine they didn't even want to give them access no
1: they don't care they really don't i mean if they had crappy photographers on staff that were putting out garbage they might like consider it but the guys are doing good work i mean i'll give it up to them i don't know who the guys are but i see stuff come out of spacex and it's like yeah that's a great shot you know good job like i wish i had access to that thing to shoot it but they want to control the feed and that's all there is to it you know so that's what we got to deal with
0: and with that, uh, was it, was that something that you had pitched to Nat Geo to cover or they came to you with that launch or like, how did the whole project, I guess, come together?
1: Yeah, I'm working on kind of a longer term project with them. And uh, that seemed like I, that was something that I pointed out. I said, well, look, this launch is coming up. You know, I'd, I'd gone down there three times. It kept getting canceled Yeah, and it was a six hour drive to get down there and then lug all our stuff up to the rooftop and then they canceled it. And then we had to go back down two weeks later and canceled it and then we went again and fortunately it flew. Uh, But that's aerospace as well. You know, scrub launches are common in aerospace. Um, You know, some little alarm will go off like right before the launch is uh, meant to take place and the whole thing auto shuts down, you know, shuts down automatically. Um, But that was something I I, I sort of like brought to their, I don't even want to say pitch, but I, I guess it's kind of a pitch I just said hey you know I feel like this is a an important piece of this project Um, and they approved it you know right away and um, but yeah uh, as far as like you know National Geographic normally is an incredible in you know when I'm working with NASA they bend over backwards to accommodate us and always have and you know I've worked in Kazakhstan at Baikonur and even the soviets totally like have reverence for national geographic and took incredible care of us when we were over there and
0: stuff yeah then you you got to actually photograph the le- the last launch of discovery which was in i believe february 2011 right
1: yeah i did discovery in february uh i think endeavor was like june and then atlantis was in like august We sh- i shot all three of them the last three launches of the last three shuttles yeah no there also- were five originally but Challenger and, uh, Columbia both suffered catastrophic failures. And, uh, so there were three orbiters left plus enterprise, which was suborbital, you know, it was just a, basically an aerodynamics test bed. Um, you watched, uh, for all mankind last night.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I watched it again after we did that interview, uh, a couple of years ago, I watched it. And then I was watching it again uh, last night and, uh, yeah it's just amazing as yeah, this it, with brian you know the music and everything that's the footage it's it's like truly incredible like anybody it's on if you got hbo max now they got for all mankind's on there so go check it is out.
1: it on there yeah good yeah it's, yeah. It's on there. yeah it's a masterpiece my friend al reiner um who actually wrote the foreword for my shuttle book last launch uh directed that film and he passed away last year yeah and uh yeah, it was sad. Um, I had lunch with him like uh, two weeks before he died. It's great seeing him for the last time. But um, yeah, he worked on that film for eight years. Wow. And it's it's so, talk about a masterpiece. I mean, in my opinion, that is like one of the greatest documentaries ever made, you know? And I, I love the idea that like there are no talking heads. It's all, the, the oration is all Apollo astronauts, flown astronauts, but um, we see just beautiful imagery of you know, space flight, et cetera, and not sort of guys sitting in a library or whatever, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely, no, it was awesome. And uh, how do you view aerospace now? Like you know a lot more about it than I do, there seems like there's a lot of players in the game. Now you got SpaceX, NASA, there's like Virgin Galactic and then uh, Bezos has his thing, Blue Origin. They all kind of seem like they have different goals probably. Um, Do you think it's a good thing to have all these different um, players kind of in the aerospace game now with aerospace or how do you kind of view the different like?
1: Yeah, I I think if we think about like the history of space travel, for example, like NASA never made anything, right? They commissioned everything, right? So Grumman made the lander, North American made the capsule, uh, you know, Rockadyne, Rockwell made the engines. There was different manufacturers for each component piece that of the spacecraft, right? So in a way, there were always like independent aerospace contractors that were building the pieces that were put together to do the missions. Um, the difference today is that none of those companies that were building the pieces were actually flying the pieces, right? NASA was flying them. Yep. So NASA was involved in specking out what they needed. Contractors were building what NASA needed and then NASA was responsible for the flights. So today what's happening is, you know, SpaceX, while they're also manufacturing stuff that NASA is supervising the flights, like, you know, the Dragon capsule coupled to the Falcon, to take crews up to the ISS, which we've seen twice now, and a third time it will happen in March. There'll be another one. Um, uh, that's not super unique, but what is unique is that SpaceX operates their own launch facility, and they're heavily embedded in the satellite game. And that's where the money is. You know, people want to get satellites up there, and it's you know it's by the pound. People pay by the pound and uh, you know so we're trying to make smaller and smaller and smaller satellites obviously which they're doing very well these days and uh it's it's within reach of smaller companies now to actually have a satellite communication satellite or weather satellite or whatever it is up there um there's also nasa contracts that people want so north american i mean um boeing for example has built a capsule that is competing with the Dragon capsule, which is SpaceX's capsule. It's called the Orion. And um, so there's people that are sort of levying and jockeying for position within the sort of future use uh, of, uh, of uh, hardware. And um, then there's also missions like there's uh, Starlink, which is a geostatic satellite that is, I'm pretty sure it's geostatic that is uh, going to be uh, at the position at the moon that's kind of going to be like a waypoint or a jumping off point for lunar missions um, that are going to go down to the moon land on the lunar surface. So the SpaceX launch that I just watched, um, the stepping that's a stepping stone launch for a potential Mars landing and also for uh, the development of the lunar lander. And Blue Origin is also working on their model for the lunar lander so that's a kind of a historical model so they'll get money from nasa to do R&D to try to like come up with something and then of course just like military contracts then nasa will af- af- award the final contract so if you know if the military puts out a contract for a fighter you know multiple companies will like throw their hat in the ring and they'll get money from the air force or from the pentagon to build like their best version of this fighter and they'll spend you know trillion dollars building it and then one of the companies is going to get the contract so it's working that way now the virgin galactic thing is very different so the virgin galactic thing right now is geared around space tourism and none of these other players are interested in space tourism at all yeah. so the space tourism game is basically it's a little bit misleading to be honest with you like i feel like there's i think there are 500 people now that have signed up to go at 350 a pop, 3 350 thousand a pop, for seven minutes of free fall.
0: Seven minutes? Is- yeah.
1: Well, it's seven minutes of free fall, so they'll experience reduced gravity for seven minutes, which is cool. Um, but what you they could, don't you, really- could,
0: you could you could just go David Blaine style, hook yourself up to some balloons in this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just,
1: uh, the funny thing about um, the funny thing about uh, about. Um, this model is really what you're doing is you're flying, you know, you're flying way up, and you're flying a parabola. So you're flying a big, a big. Here's my parabola here, flying a big curve and going back down. And at the at the apogee, and at the descent, you start to float because everybody's free falling every at the same time. So the spacecraft's free falling, you're free falling, so everybody's like free falling. There's if you could be stationary in that same position there would be totally normal gravity. You'd just be walking around the inside of the plane, right? But because you can't stay stationary and are flying this parabola, you're going to experience what they call free fall, which which people erroneously uh, refer to as zero gravity. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of gravity right there. You're just in a free fall mode, right? So everything's falling at the same rate, including you. So you, you don't have really any attachment to the you know spacecraft in fact you I think you unbuckle your belt and they let you float around for a while and then you have to buckle your belt back up and so whatever I mean it, it's still good it's it's basically like an extended version of the vomit comet which is the KC-135 that flies parabolas yeah. and you experience for in the vomit comet I think you experience like I, I don't even remember what it is it's a couple of minutes it's not super long but it's the same kind of thing where you experience that reduce that sensation of reduced gravity.
0: Yeah, and you actually had the opportunity to photograph Elon Musk uh, a few years back. Um, what was kind of your uh, experience photographing him? Um, he, he seems like an interesting dude. I've like listened to a lot of interviews with them and follow him on Twitter and stuff. And he's got a he's a he's an interesting guy.
1: Yeah, he's a very interesting guy. I was really excited about it because definitely passionate about the subject. So I took advantage of my FaceTime with him to. I mean, the most the kind of most interesting thing we were talking about was like the specific impulse of rocket engines, which is the hurdle that people that are designing rocket engines struggle with and basically it refers to like the efficiency of the engine. So you have an equation of like fuel to power. So really what a rocket does when it takes off. The reason it's struggling is because it's full of fuel. And as the fuel bleeds off, the rocket becomes lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter, the speed increases and then you get to orbit. But really it, it, you reach a point of diminishing returns where you, if you put any more fuel in this thing, it can't take off. You see what I'm saying? So it's like this thing. So specific impulse speaks to like the efficiency of an engine. If you can make an engine that's generating power in a more efficient way, then you can launch a heavier payload without adding fuel. That's kind of the idea of it. And the shuttle used uh, three liquid-fueled engines and two solid-fueled engines on the sides, the solid-fuel rockets, the SRB, solid rocket boosters. And um, so I was asking him about using solid rocket boosters in addition to liquid fueled engines. And so we, you know, we had a like informed conversation while I was shooting. Like I kind of just took advantage of the FaceTime to talk to him a little bit about that because I find it fascinating. And I knew that he had just created a new engine, which uh, he was really excited about at the time, the Merlin, uh, which is uh, named after the uh, engine that's in the Spitfire and the P-51 Mustang in World War II. Um, so I thought that was kind of a cool touch, but. Yeah, he's, he's very, obviously very interesting, very eccentric guy. Um, can't imagine what it would be like to be that guy in terms of like pressure, just like, I can't imagine that kind of pressure in my life, you know, like the, the insanely huge, like broad strokes that he, uh, seems to like, you know, decisions he seems to make on a regular basis that are like mind numbingly complex.
0: Yeah. Pretty impressive. I think he just moved to Texas too. Yeah. He moved to Austin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting um one more aerospace thing and then i'll get into photography before my listeners kill me uh this week uh big thing uh did you see the great con- uh conjunction with saturn and jupiter uh the other oh day? yeah yeah oh it yeah was, it was yeah. amazing yeah yeah i think yeah, it was amazing. yeah for anybody listening it was basically the great conjunction saturn and jupiter basically i think it's every four 400 years was last time they were just <laughs> c- uh close in orbit if i mm-hmm. read correctly right yeah, visibly, yeah. They're
1: still, like, super far apart, but the, the orbits kind of, like, connected. They were yeah. you know, still many miles, millions of miles apart. Um, but, yeah, it's beautiful from our vantage point to see that, you know. Um, yeah, I have this app that I, I should share with uh, the listeners, too. This app's called Starwalk.
0: Oh, yeah, that's I've used that app. It's great. It's good for people who want to learn, too.
1: It's the best app in the world. Yeah, yeah. you just – I will go outside and – every time I end up a better version of myself. Yeah, it's amazing. Really, really amazing.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I recommend it. It's fun. Um, and you know, one thing I was interested in talking to you about in, in your book, Road to Seeing, um, you talk about like the, the practice of stillness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was curious, like, like, what's your approach to that is like, are you, are you do you do like meditation? Or uh, how, how do you use the practice of stillness? Because this is something I think about a lot more with technology and your phone. Like, I feel like, as the years go on i have like worse and worse add at this point with the screens and everything like what do you mean by that when you're talking about this the practice of stillness in your book i guess
1: well i think i mean in 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 reference to photography i'll say Mm -hmm. um you know i don't feel like we can really see until we like stop and and look right so the idea of you know i was telling one time i was walking down the down the street in New York with Kath and uh, I was shooting and she got ahead of me and she waited for me at the end of the block we were on. I think we were on Fifth Avenue and she commented about, this is years ago, but I always remember it, she commented about how I was missing out on the experience of being in New York because I'm so focused on photographing. Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, did you see that fork that was pressed in the pavement to the point where, you know, and I started naming all this stuff that I saw. And I said, I would argue that I'm seeing it better yeah, than because I'm actually in the process of looking, you know, there's a great short story uh, called Blow Up, which really has little to do with the film, which I also highly recommend. It's an incredible film. But there's a short story called uh, Blow Up. And Cortazar wrote it and and, uh, is one of the best descriptions of the photographic practice in that book and the description of looking and, you know, the idea of forcibly looking. But in terms of getting still, you know, I feel like that requires like a dialogue, you know, I think, I think it's difficult for anyone to, we definitely lapse into kind of Unconsciousness a little bit with the screens. And, you know, I was in the waiting room at the doctor's office the other day, I was getting my annual physical. And um, I uh, sat down, I checked in and sat down, and I pulled my phone out and I looked up, and everyone in the waiting room had there was on their phone. No one was just sitting there. So I put my phone away and I just sat there and just experienced that. And it can be uncomfortable. You know, it can be uncomfortable. You know, I had a friend of mine that was starting to he wanted to start meditating and he said he couldn't go longer than a minute. Yeah. Without like, you know, a meltdown. Right. (laughs) And you know, Kath is incredible at meditating. She can go half hour without even like blinking an eye, you know. Um, but you know, the idea of like I'll be honest with you. I talk to myself, you know, I talk to myself sometimes and I just say, I just say, let's, you know, let's take in where we are, what we're surrounded with in this moment and really just be try to be conscious of it. You know, it takes work. It's not something that anyone that tells you they can live in that state uh, in perpetuity is not being straight with you. You can't. It's very difficult to do. But I think it takes practice. I think it takes practice. And I think we have to sit with the uncomfortable in order to get to the comfortable, you know, taking out your screen and wanting to get on your screen yeah, and, and saying, actually, I'm not going to get on my screen. I'm not going to do that. And, and, and I'm not like, you know, down on screens. I mean, I've been I loaded a whole bunch of stuff on my phone and I've been editing this job that I just shot on the phone, not necessarily editing it, but like looking through the take and going yeah. like, okay, that's one for sure. That one, that one, that one, and like using it as a tool. So I'm working as I'm, you know, as I'm sort of sitting there on the phone, but, you know, checking the email, checking the stuff. Fortunately, I have, I have calf who like takes care of all that email. Yeah. Stuff. I hardly ever look at my email. Yeah. Um, and that's really, that's really nice. So I don't have to like worry about that, but you know, I try to really be, um, uh, conscious about the instagram thing you know uh i try to look at that as little as possible you know there. um you know of course you post something and then you want to see how it's doing that's human nature but uh to try to stay away from it i posted a picture of anthony hopkins earlier today and I haven't looked i think i looked at it one time so i don't know what it's doing but
0: maybe just now i can look at it. it's up to look at it (laughs) what's the analytics uh Yeah. Yeah. Cause like I'll go I was, in your book again, you kind of mentioned like when you're uh, out in Hollywood earlier in your career and you're kind of living, like you said, unconsciously, mm-hmm. and it's like really, really focused in your career, um, not spending enough time with family and friends. Do you think it's even possible to like have success? And like, people always talk about this thing, like work-life balance. Can, can you even have both or not really? It seems like if you have like high goals and achieve stuff you have, Like how do you even balance that, is it it possible?
1: Well, I would say that the launching point of it is pretty all-consuming, like getting it going. Yeah. Uh, And I think once you get it going, um, it becomes easier to sort of sit back and not worry as much about kind of like, you know, I, I got to the point in my career, I remember when I just believed that the universe would take care of things Mm -hmm. like if I was honest with myself about the work I'm creating working as hard as I can doing the best work I can and not like phoning it in and trying every time I feel like the universe like takes care of you like I really believe that you know and um and it's shown to be the case you know for me like I really you know I feel like the work comes in when I need it and um when it does I treat it with reverence, regardless of what it is, whether it's like, you know, a steel life. I just I was looking at these still lifes. I did have a piece of coal for wired. And I was thinking like there were a lot of people probably that would slough this thing off and not give it as much attention as they would a portrait of like doing a portrait of the president or something like that. I yeah. And I think if you give it equal energy and attention, no matter what it is, um, you satisfy your clients, obviously, They know you're going to do the best job you can, but also you're being true to your own sort of artistic pursuit. You know, I think marginalizing any kind of aspect, but also knowing when to turn things down, you know, that's not to say that sort of everything is a great fit, but once you accept something or once you agree uh, to sort of like spend your energy on a job or an assignment or whatever it is, then obviously, you know, You want to do the best you can. I mean, it it needs to be the same amount of energy if it's for like a local publication or like the cover of the New York Times Magazine. Like it should be the same exact expenditure of passion and energy and, uh, you know, pursuit of perfection, regardless of what it's
0: for. 100%. And when you do turn something down, is it just you're not interested in it? You don't think you're the right fit for it? Like you don't think you could do a good enough job at it or is it just the finances of it? Or like what, when you, when you do, cause like, this is the thing I worry about. Like I rarely ever turn shit down cause I just need everything I can get. But it's like the worry, I think a lot of divers, if you turn something down, it's like, Oh, they'll never hit that magazine. will never contact me again. Cause I said no or something. And then like you mm-hmm. those opportunities. Cause like, I mean, opportunities are few and far between now there's less magazines. A lot of magazines that used to be uh, monthly, might be bi-monthly, I know like popular science is only four times a year now, it's uh, seasonal. So it's like, like, how do you make those decisions at this point or like you're gonna turn something down?
1: Well, I mean, there aren't, a, there aren't a lot of jobs that come to me that I turn down. And I yeah. think it's partially because when people come to me, they kind of are familiar with my work yeah. and want something that I have to offer. Yeah. Um, things I would say that I would turn down I learned a valuable lesson uh, one time when I got an assignment to photograph um, W, uh, George Bush. Um, And I didn't like his presidency. I didn't like what he did in the presidency specifically, uh, especially with the war and like, you know, kind of a, uh, kind of an unprovoked attack on Iraq and stuff. Um, Which kind of goes against our American kind of ethos, you know, about, uh, you know, unprovoked attack onto a sovereign nation. So I kind of was crusty about that. And I got an assignment to photograph them and I didn't want to do it. And uh, Kath didn't respond to the magazine for a while about it or a little while. And she kept saying, you know, you should do it, you know, you should do it and you should uh, you should see what it's like, you know, you're judging someone uh maybe unfairly or you know you should do the assignment. So I finally was like, okay, I'll go do the assignment. And I just kind of like approached it as though he was another human being, doing the best he can with what he could, flawed like we all are. And uh we had like a great shoot. It was at the ranch. It's a beautiful day, beautiful photos, like super proud of like what I did. Had a great shoot with him. He was fun. He did this really funny thing, like within maybe five or six minutes of the shoot starting, he goes, he just looked at me and he goes, Dan Winters, you're a great American, (laughs) which I I got a kick out of. Did I ever tell you that story?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I told you that story last time. It's all good, though. Yeah, it's, no, one of my,
1: it's, it's one of my favorite stories no so, it's great man
0: yeah because yeah, yeah. It, it is like the, yeah it's, it's, but it's, i guess it's
1: it speaks to what you brought up which is why i'm using it now the idea of like so basically if it's an assignment that i don't feel like i'm going to do anything with mm-hmm. uh, that maybe is someone that i don't necessarily want to be associated with yeah or i don't feel the way I look at it now, honestly, is what what is my investment going to be? Am I going to have to travel? Yeah. Am I going to have to spend a bunch of time away from home, mm-hmm. away from Kath uh, to do this job that I don't really see as enriching or uh, being an addition to my archive? Um, if if sort of the answer is yes in any of those things, then maybe it's something That someone else would do a better job at. I mean, someone wanted me to shoot. uh, I can't even remember her name now. Who was the Kellyanne Conway?
0: Yeah,
1: and I was like, man, I don't want to shoot her. Like, (laughs) what would I do with a picture of her? Yeah. So I turned it down. I was like, no, I don't want to do it. And they got someone else to do it. Guy did a totally fine job. He probably like, you know, I know I talked to uh, Nadav Kandar about shooting Trump. And he had this idea that, uh, that it was small-minded to re- refuse uh, shooting portraits of people just because you disagreed with them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I totally disagree, man. Like I wouldn't shoot Trump there's no way. I mean, I have like my own artistic like soul to contend with here. And the idea that I would have to travel to DC, I would have to be away from Kath I would have to do all this stuff for, for a picture I totally don't want. Like, I, I don't understand why I should do that and why that would be small-minded. So it was an interesting conversation.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's like uh, the only thing they're not making more—they're not making time. That's the—you're not getting. are not any making more any
1: more time. time. Yeah, and especially like time with you know, I value my time at home. I value my time with Kath. You know.
0: Totally, and uh, you know, one series of photos that were for me like were extremely powerful of yours uh, that I looked at um the new yorker published four years ago um of of your good friend uh, brett kilroy um and you mm-hmm. kind of you photographed kind of the last he i believe he had, was a colon cancer he, um he passed away from correct mm-hmm. um and you photographed kind of him and this the last four years of him dealing with this terrible illness i guess what kind of compelled you to kind of document that process and like what do you kind of take away when you photographing that i guess
1: Mm, It's an interesting question. So Brett was one of my dearest friends, and he was a longtime collaborator. He was the head of the art department at RCA Records, and he and I collaborated on a lot of music stuff. And when he first was diagnosed, we were having this conversation, and he had to go to uh, Sloan Kettering to have a procedure done where they were going to remove part of this tumor. And I was there in New York, and I went with him. And I hung out with him in his room and like took pictures of like the scar and the, you know, just the, you know, the incision and all that stuff. So it was like one of those things where I just photographed this thing. Okay. And then we kind of came up with this idea that I should document this whole thing that he's going through so that once he emerged on the other side, um, we'd have this archive so I just started shooting everything and I spent a lot of time with him and he spent a lot of time he would come down to our house and stay in Austin he would um he I would go to New York and stay with him whenever I was doing a job in New York even though there was always hotel budgets I would always stay with him and just like ended up photographing him a lot and you know it got pretty dark and I photographed sorry I photographed uh when it got dark and then he kind of came out of it and photographed that. And then it got really bad at the end. And I talked to him about it, you know, near the end um, about the photo project, which was, you know, thousands of images at that point. And, you know, I'm doing that and doing 10 other things at the same time, you know, that Mm -hmm. was just like this thing we had going on. And um, it was very apparent that he wasn't gonna leave the hospital. He was ambulatory still at this time. So we took a walk around the ward, around the wing that he was in at Sloan Kettering together and um, talked about a lot of things and kind of made our apologies and our gratitude list, et cetera. And uh, I brought up the photo project and I said, you know, I'm gonna just keep shooting this stuff. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, shoot everything, shoot till the end. So I shot all the way till the end after he passed, you know, I did a beautiful sort of portrait of his body and it was really powerful for me and and, and really painful. And it's really interesting. I show that we're kind of an expanded version of that uh, New Yorker piece um, when I speak. And I can't tell you how many people come up to me afterwards and with gratitude about having shown that, that how many people have gone through cancer with people, with loved ones, family members, friends, etc., that are just like, oh my God, I was so completely touched by those photographs of your friend. I lost my best friend to cancer, this and that. Like, so, you know, you start to realize it, the power of imagery, obviously, to affect people on a very deep level, you know, and it brings it to you, you know, a uniter, like, you know, you, you have that shared experience with that individual, they come up to you and sort of share their, personal connection to it. And you suddenly have something in common with someone that you've never met, you know, kind of have always loved that quality to photography, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely. No, they're really powerful images. And like you said, like everyone knows someone probably in their family that's either passed away from cancer, or has dealt with it. Um, So really really something people can relate to. And it's a hard thing to talk about, Um, but very powerful images. And I mean, Brett Kilroy, that guy, I didn't uh, read about him he he did some amazing work he, he designed the legendary uh old dirty bastard uh mm-hmm. the return to 36 chambers that logo which has been like people have copied it like a million times and he did like amazing work for like kings of leon taylor mm-hmm. swift foo fighters legendary designers so mm-hmm. really really amazing guy sounded like
1: yeah, yeah brett was a very special person
0: yeah and uh you know, someone I was talking to some fellow photographers, and they—I was asking people some questions to ask you, and they, they were curious about uh, your studio space. It, and I've been to it; it's quite, quite the the building. I was just kind of curious the backstory, like how you found it, um, what was kind of process to kind of did you have to do a lot of work to it when you moved in, or?
1: Um, so it's kind of a classic case of like, watch, watch what you wish for. <laughs> Because we were in LA, I had a beautiful studio. In fact, I lament the fact that I don't have it anymore only because I love spending time in it. But um, I had a studio right in Hollywood um, in the old Technicolor building. And uh, it was a wonderful space, very airy. It was on the second floor. So I had all these windows that looked out onto Kwanga, um Boulevard. And when we moved down to Austin, I held on to it for a little while. But I had told Kath I was like I want a building out in the middle of nowhere, yeah. And that's pretty much what I found. So a friend of mine and I were at the post office in Dripping Springs, Texas, which is about seven minutes, seven miles away from here. And I had put it. I had put an offer on another old uh, archival. I mean a uh, uh, vintage building uh, in Dripping Springs, and I was talking to the woman that worked at the post office, and I said, Oh yeah, I put on a. I put an offer in for this building down the road and she said oh you know the general store in driftwood is for sale and it just went on the market and i so we drove straight over and the guy that owned it was here and i kind of looked around and went out in the back and i was like i'll take it like on the spot shake hands kind of thing like classic (laughs) sort of like something my dad would do um but yeah it was just kind of there you know and, and to be honest with you, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, leaving it too. I'm thinking about moving, thinking about building a, a studio, uh, on my property where I live. Yeah. so I can just get up and walk to work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it won't affect anything at all for me in terms of work, you know, it'll, it'll still have a big wood shop. It'll still have all the things that I have mm-hmm. here so I can keep working in the way that I work. But, um it will be you know less of a drive and it's really growing out here as well like yeah, you can hear sirens going by and stuff i mean i know there was a there's yeah. an, i mean there's an accident down the road but yeah um but uh it um it uh you know i think it kind of found me to a degree you know a little bit you know i mean i love early century mid century american architecture and sort of the nostalgia of that period and certainly this building was built in 1903 so it's like 100 and what 100 years old
0: 113 years old yeah it felt like a museum that's like going i thought i took a bunch of pictures of when i was there yeah it was just like and then i think it's important to like i've been trying to make a point of it like i got some artwork now and it's like like having a workspace in an environment, it can kind of inspire you, like the books and the, the photos you had on the wall. At least mm-hmm. for me, there's like an energy to it almost a little bit. Yeah.
1: It also, for me, like doing that and creating that environment and creating the uh, sort of the library and all the things, you know, um, we, can, we, can, uh, we can definitely, I don't know if get stuck is the proper word to use, but we can definitely like always use inspiration and we can find inspiration. You know, I always find like, your output is directly related to all the things that you've been exposed to in your life Mm -hmm. right so what you're you know giving back to the universe in in the way that you're expressing your passion in the universe through photography or through art is you know a collective sort of uh, a collective um, kind of Fusion of everything you've ever been exposed to, you know, and that stuff is what you're spitting out, you know, not spitting out necessarily, but and sometimes, you know, influences are more prominent than others, uh, but even subtle, like nuanced things that you've been exposed to are in some way informing your work. So I think it's important to be around beauty and to be around things. You know, we're we're photographers, right? We're completely. Our everything we do is based on having something to respond to. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to have something in front of us in order to make a picture. Yeah, And so, you know, the idea of like being surrounded by kind of beauty and, and objects that are inspirational, I think is, is really important actually. Yeah, the idea of like a pure white studio, like the whole like cliche kind of, if you're watching like, mad men or something black, black
0: leather couches and all yeah, that. <laughs> yeah like
1: how inspirational is that it's not at all when i shoot at like pure 59 it's like soulless to me man i mean it has to be at a place like that because you're getting a lot of different people in there but if, if it was my own personal studio i mean my studio in la was the same as the one here it's just was on a smaller scale you know it's all vintage stuff and yeah i had my collections and my library and you know it was a whole like you know it was a whole thing it just like you know, even in the quiet moments when you're alone, just to pick up a book and, like, go through it and put it back down, like, satisfied, a little bit satisfied. You know, that's important, that stuff.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you guys, had, I saw you guys had quite the storm there earlier this summer. Uh You lost, like, I think, what, like, 2,000 negatives, like, the roof blew off or something? Yeah,
1: yeah, over 2,000. Yeah. Damn. Part of the, yeah, we had a huge storm, and it was, like, 60-mile-an-hour winds, and it blew a section of the roof off, and water got in it and the roof was sloped so the water the water ran down to mm-hmm. where the eggs are stored and just started pouring into boxes full of negatives and yeah we lost like 2,000 eggs. I lost some really good ones I don't know if you know I didn't lose any anything that made me cry but I lost a lot of stuff that I felt like I worked really freaking hard on you know Definitely, um, And in whole jobs, you know, like the whole thing would just be the job envelope would just be completely soaked through and the emulsion was, by the time I could get to, it, you know, the emulsion had come off of so many of the nags because they were in contact with like the glass scenes and all that. There Mostly it was all, it was a like 95% of it was four by five. Yeah. Buildings. Yeah. There's a very small amount of 120 or 220 in there, but mostly all four by five. Yeah, but, uh, black and white yeah there's some there's a fair amount of color too
0: actually. Um, you know I was interested in talking to you I you know uh, our new uh, uh, vice president-elect Kamala Harris um, you had the opportunity to photograph her you um, know we talked a little bit about like last time I was out there politics and stuff. I guess what was kind of your, your experience photographing her and uh, are you now kind of hopeful moving forward I guess?
1: Yeah, I mean I'm what I'm looking forward to is not waking up every day. And having some another like crazy yeah. tweet or some inappropriate behavior uh i think we need a we need a leader that acts appropriately and with reverence to the american people as a whole and i feel like biden is a good man yeah. i don't feel like he's a controversial man i think he's a good man i think he's solid i think he's an honest man and uh, i think that's what we need and we've not had that for four years so i think that'll be a nice thing finally you know and someone that's not trying to spread misinformation and all those things um kamala actually when when the um prior to biden being nominated as the uh as the uh democratic candidate i actually was hoping kamala was the one that got the nomination to be honest with you yeah, because you know i know there's controversy in her past with regards to like jailing people for you know marijuana and stuff like that like stuff that probably wouldn't be jailed for now mm-hmm. um, but you know those were the laws then and that's the laws changed and things changed. but what i do know about her is that she's incredibly intelligent and she can hold her own she can hold her own in any room with any group of men you know she can hang and i think that's really important and i i i, I really like the idea of having a woman president to be honest with you i think women are just better at stuff than men are you know men are you know i mean as we're seeing right now like the level of egoism and narcissism that is in the office at this time you know that soon will be uh soon we won't see and we're not going to see that with biden i'm convinced you know i'm glad if biden's going to be holding big rallies in his own honor and you know uh he'll be working every day he won't be golfing all the time you know he'll yeah. be working and i think that's what we need someone that's working i i want to know that there's a smart guy doing the job mm-hmm. that's what i want to know that's that's what i want you know it's like when people would you know and yet you you know definitely like The guy who's in office is definitely not the most qualified guy kind of ever, right? Like some political scientist from like Harvard should be the fucking president. You know, someone that understands and doesn't, you know, the the whole notion of like politics, it completely like deludes, like, you know, Jon Stewart should be president or something, you know, smart as hell, gets politics really well. Like, you know, he's a no bullshit guy. Like I was, I thought early on, I'm like, man, John Stewart should run for president. <laughs> like he could talk circles around any of these clowns, you know. Definitely. But uh anyway. Um, but I, yeah, I'm optimistic I'm optimistic. I think uh, I think it's gonna be hopefully like a really quiet presidency. And that's what we want. That's what we need. We need we need to know that someone's doing the job and not trying to make a mess, not trying to like pit people against people not constantly lying constantly making things up we just need someone that will do the job that's what we need and i feel like biden will do the job you know was he my first choice no will he do a great job i think he'll do a great job i think he'll he'll do a solid a solid job so
0: yeah what thing i was interested in talking about uh, uh you spent a lot of time working for texas monthly um shooting like photo essays and uh I was just kind of curious, like, what's your, what's your like approach to like shooting like essays when you're doing that type of work? Like, do you kind of go in like mapped out of like, how you are going to execute it when you're like telling a long format story like that? Or you kind of just let things kind of unfold while you're shooting it, I guess.
1: Well, it's funny. You should ask about that because I just spent the last week shooting on a photo essay for Texas monthly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, um, I think what I try to do right off the bat is determine like the intent, like what's my intent? What do I want this thing to look like? What do I want it to be? And uh, once I establish the intent and the desired sort of aesthetic and like what it should be, pick the tool that works the best, whether it's like Hasselblad, which are, a lot of the photo essays I shot for Texas Monthly were shot with Hasselblad. I shot photo essays for them that were shot on four by five Mm -hmm. This particular one, I shot 35 color Um, and uh, I pretty much in my mind, like worked out like what it was going to look like, you know, I kind of came up with the backstory. I was like, okay, I'm going to be like an alien who got dropped into this region and his responding to what he sees here. And so I kind of used that as my starting point and just went out, we went out to the Permian Basin which is uh, this area of like 17 counties where the most uh, oil production of anywhere in the world was in the 17-county area. Wow. And I went out there and just like observed, you know, and just shot.
0: And you just go solo or do you even bring a sister? No, I went
1: went with Johnny and I had him drive. Got it. Yeah, I think you met Johnny, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Awesome guy. Yeah, I had Johnny drive so I could just look and we... I, I got a, a map of Texas and I marked the 17 counties and cut it out. So I'm like, okay, here is like where we're living for the next six days. And I'm going to go back again in uh, mid January for another maybe four or five days to finish up. You know, wow. yeah, it's not nice. like a
0: fun assignment, man, just kind of out there, this exploring and like that, that sounds really exciting.
1: Yeah, it was very exciting and a lot of fun and really, uh, really productive as well like i shot a lot of stuff and i shot a lot of really good stuff and really proud it's probably my one of my favorite photo essays i've ever done i'm really happy with it like a kind of an embarrassment of riches a little bit
0: and when you approach that type of work do you approach it like in a traditional like photojournalist sense like like the quote unquote tri- traditional journalists, like if you're at New York Times you can't do a lot of editing to your work or like how do you kind of approach that like essay documentary style work in terms of like the editing I guess
1: um as far as the editing goes you know for for everything I do I mean I would say I do color treatments to stuff but I also this stuff's pretty straight and uh you know I was doing things like saying okay i want to be in this area right here at the end of the day so i can get good light for the end of the day and so we'd go out of our way to like make sure we were back in this spot so i could get this shot this shot this shot like i work out the shots i wanted to get um you know we check the sun where the sun was going to go down and stuff like that so we figure out what the lighting was going to look like um but as far as editing it's really straight it's really straightforward it's really pretty a lot of it's really bright because it's like a bright dry landscape and so during the day when i was shooting which i shot during the day as well Mm -hmm. it has that kind of almost baked feel and then the stuff at the end of the day is just this beautiful like you know glowing kind of beautiful light and then obviously shooting even after after uh the sun was down just in that magic hour period i saw this really cool film yesterday called the banishment yeah it's a russian film and uh i was listening to an interview with uh, do you ever listen? Do you ever listen to Team Deacons and all the podcast? Oh
0: yeah, dude, that's like I've been listening to that lately. I listened to the Jake Gyllenhaal episode the other day, and like yeah. all the, I've listened to a bunch of them. I, it's amazing he's doing that.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. Well, he can't work, you know. So he's, yeah, uh, true. He's <laughs> a it. It's cool. So they they had this Russian director on there, his name is Andre, and I can't pronounce his last name. It's pretty long, like Zibogdov or something. But uh, I've watched two of his films so far because I was so kind of in inspired to see the work he was doing based on just on the combination conversation. He had, he had him and his DP, they always worked together. And so Roger was interviewing the, the both of them. And so this one film he shot that I watched was so interesting. They shot it way in the North of Russia, like by the Arctic circle. Yeah. And they shot it in the summer. So they had like six hours of sweet light. They wow. had like six hours of magic hour Damn. because, you know, it stays light till like midnight. Shoot a whole por-
0: portfolio out there. <laughs> it was
1: amazing. And I watched it and I'm like, you know, it was almost like watching Days of Heaven where, but every day during Days of Heaven, they were waiting for light. You know, they had to wait and then they would scramble to shoot at Sweet Light for a couple hours. And this guy had like, his whole shooting day was basically magic hour and the end of the day. And it was really kind of amazing. But, um, you know, we're 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 definitely like, as far as the, like the editing and stuff goes on these, you know, these are 35 available light, right. So I'm shooting with the Canon. So 50 megapixel available light, pretty deep stop usually. So everything's sharp. Yeah. Um, And they kind of look how they look, you know, I mean, it's what it looks like and it's hard to describe, but I mean, you gotta, you've always had to find, find the color, find the thing, you know, that you need. And, um, you know they're driven largely by content. You know, I mean, I, I said I'm not shooting any people. Yeah. Only shooting, like landscapes, calm landscapes, but only shooting landscapes, whether it's the side of the road or on the end of some dirt road or whatever. But um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it's worked out pretty well.
0: Right on. A couple more questions. I'll let you go. Um what would you say to people that are, you know, they're interested in portrait photography? Like, what are some things you think they should do if you're you're looking to pursue that type of work? Like, what are some things they should focus on if they're trying to build like a portfolio in portraiture, I guess?
1: I mean, I can speak to like what I did and that is I just did portraits of all my friends mm-hmm. and I would set them up just like it was an assignment. You know, have them come over to my studio in New York or to uh, in when I was in California early on, like when I was a newspaper photographer, I had a studio where I lived, I lived in a house. I had a studio and converted the living room completely into a studio shooting space, kept the lights up so they were always up, you know, and have yeah. people come over and shoot portraits of them and just practice. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, you shoot a bunch of good portraits of people and you show them to someone and they can see the, they can see your ability. You know, it doesn't have to be a portrait of like, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal or whatever. It can be anything. Yeah. And but... they can see your ability and maybe then you get a break. I mean, the first kind of A-list celebrity sort of A-list actor I ever photographed was Denzel Washington. Yeah. And it was a assignment from New York Times Magazine. And it was one of those ones where it was like, you know, I'd shot portraits, I'd shot actors, I'd shot... You know, I just had never shot anybody on that level at that time. And so I can look at that as a defining moment because I did a very specific thing on that shoot and I got work from that right away, literally Monday, it ran on Sunday. It's kind of that old adage about cars, you know, race on Sunday, buy on Monday, <laughs> back when cars were like, you know, Chevys versus Fords versus yeah. Chrysler. Um and it was one of those, I can see that moment. You know, other moments are more subtle and nuanced, you know, and you don't really know where you got a job from. You don't really know, like, especially now, I don't know why I get the assignments I get. I mean, it's a collective of probably people looking at the website or yeah. looking online or whatever, but that was a really well-defined moment. I think I wrote about that and I wrote a scene, but that was one of those moments where it was kind of like, picture got published, work started coming in.
0: The set was, was great. Was, I loved, the set was awesome.
1: Thanks. Yeah. yeah, I built that the night before by myself. <laughs>
0: that's <laughs> a, man. That's a, that's my that's my New Year's resolution, Dan. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna get some tools. I'm gonna break out that saw. I'm gonna start getting to work, man. Start building some shit. You know. There you go. That'll work. Um, and I guess my last question to wrap up, like, um, obviously, a crazy year. Um, going into the new year, um, any kind of goals for yourself or anything you're hoping to work on going into 2021? Um
1: looking forward to continuing on this uh, geographic job, which I'm really excited about. Obviously finishing up this Texas monthly photo essay. I'm really excited about that. Um, finishing the movie, um, you know, getting the getting the scoring and the sound and the, you know, getting the narration recorded and getting it all together and getting it into uh, festival, uh, entering into festivals. You know, we got a festival start uh, accepting stuff for 2022
0: is it a short film or is it like a full length, like it's a short,
1: it's, a, it's 40 minutes. Okay. Got it. Yeah. It's a, it's a short film. It'll be a short film category and um, you know, getting that into festivals is a big goal of mine. And then getting the next film project going. And I have one documentary I'm working on right now. And then, uh, yeah, just excited about like doing more film, to be honest with you. And, uh, there's never been more outlets for film as there are now, you know, I mean, with all the streaming services and stuff like content is king, which is pretty awesome for, Mm -hmm. from a director standpoint, you know, definitely. So I look forward to that and uh, yeah, making pictures, doing books, you know, when I finish up this film, you know, I'm going to start getting a couple books out there. I'm thinking about doing a book of this Permian Basin, to be honest with you, because I got so much stuff like, I always think like a book is like 80 or 90 pictures. Yeah. And that's a good like sized book, unless it's a monograph or like a retrospective, you know? Um, So that'll be another one, but I have several other ones I've been working on.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, man. And uh, Dan, man, always a pleasure talking to you, man. I can't thank you enough and uh, have a good holidays and looking forward to seeing more of your work in the new year, man.
1: Good deal. It was really a pleasure. Really good seeing you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to today's episode with photographer Dan Winters. I can't thank him enough for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, Like I said, I've been a big fan of his work for years. Just incredible photographer and always just working on projects and shooting. So I can't thank him enough. Um, And as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, um, uh, definitely go check out uh, pickdrop.com. It's a new file transfer tool I've been using for a little while now. Um, You can... To sign up if you use the promo code Photobanter, you'll get three months free of the pick drop uh, file transfer platform Uh, Just remember to use the promo code PHOTOBANTER when you sign up at pickdrop.com. But like I said, it's just a really useful tool Uh, when I'm sharing my photos with clients. They can make selections, I create private galleries, and I just have all my work archived, all my selects. I know that they're safe and it's easy to download and I just know everything's there when I need it. If I need to use it on my phone or on my laptop or whatnot, all my files are there. Um, so definitely, like I said, go to pickdrop.com and enter the promo code photo banter one word when you sign up and you'll get three months free of the PickDrop uh, file transfer tool. Um, so thanks so much for listening. And as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts every week on Spotify, Apple podcasts, as well as the photo banter YouTube page. Uh, so definitely go check us out on YouTube and hit the subscribe button and like, uh, would be much appreciated. Uh, but as always, uh, thanks so much for listening and uh, happy new year.